for tuning in to the Push Through Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Reeves. I am a licensed professional counselor with a private practice here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I specialize in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And on the Push Through Podcast, we're going to talk all things motherhood, womanhood, childhood, and everything in between. And sometimes random things that are on my mind. So please sit back, relax, and let's have a chat. This week's episode is sponsored by The Birth Lounge. Did you know that some studies show up to 70% of women experience birth trauma during their labor and delivery? In 2019, the New York Times featured an article that highlighted how traditional childbirth education fails to accurately prepare women for birth. If you're an expecting parent, you've no doubt noticed the overwhelming information and fear-based education surrounding having a baby. I'm delighted to introduce to you The Birth Lounge, a modern approach to preparing for a baby. The Birth Lounge is an online membership driven by evidence-based information and research to help you navigate pregnancy, prepare for birth, and avoid birth trauma. You will gain instant access to the latest research and hottest topics to help you know your options and explore your rights so you can birth like a queen. You deserve a birth that is trauma-free. Visit www.thebirthlounge.com to take control of your birth and achieve your ideal labor. Use code PUSHTHROUGH5, that's PUSH, T-H-R-U, the number five, to save $5 off each month. For more information, follow Tranquility by Hehe on Instagram. Well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps cause you finds it kinder there. Don't you fall now, for I still going, honey. I still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. This is Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. Welcome to today's podcast. Johnny baptized me. I say, Roger and roll. Oh, I'm Roger and roll. My soul arises ever, Lord, for the year Roger and roll. Well, some say John was a Baptist. Some say John was a Jew. But I say John was a preacher because my Bible says so too. I say, Roger and roll. Roger and roll, my soul arising ever, Lord, for the year and Thank you for joining me for today's episode. This has been an episode that's been sitting on my mind since the beginning of the year. And I've been taking little bits and 
pieces of information as I came across of it to be able to sit down and have this chat with you. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to put this out in February because it was Black History Month. And then I didn't know if I wanted to put it out this month because it's Women's History Month. But being that I believe Black history should be celebrated more than just 28 or 29 days in a year, depending if it's a leap year or not, but something that should be celebrated every day, always, um, because it's a part of our history, I decided why not in March? And plus in combination of what this podcast is about, womanhood, and being that March is Women's History Month, what better timing than now? So here you have it. Um, The poem that I read at the beginning of this episode was by a great African-American poet. And I think it really kind of highlights what motherhood was like for a woman raising a black son in America, in the early ages of America. And this is something that's kind of sat on my heart, being a black woman raising two black boys. I'm pregnant with one. I have four weeks left (laughs) in my pregnancy. And I have a three-year-old. And there's just a lot of conversations that I will have to have with my sons that other women from other races will not. And there's a lot of history in being a black mother in this country that is very different from others. And I wanted to talk about that. And as you know, I am from the South. So listening to hymns and listening to people gather and sing gospel songs really just strike me. The song that I played in the intro is from 12 Years of Slaves, um, which is one of my favorite movies. Like, I I loved it so much, I bought it on DVD, 12 Years of Slave. And I know it sounds crazy to some, perhaps, um, to like a movie so much that depicts struggle and hardship and sadness. But 12 Years a Slave to me was very poetic and it highlighted so many things that you don't see in a typical movie about slavery. And it was a big highlight or aha moment for me to really understand that slavery is different for several people depending on the region that they lived in, depending on um, the time of the century, depending on their gender, depending on what role they had on the plantation, um, whether they were in Portugal or rather they were in um, the Caribbean or on the coast of North Carolina. It was just different for everybody and their experiences and listening to that story. Listening to Northup's story about being a freed slave and being highly intelligent, highly cultured, playing the violin and then being kidnapped, brought to the South, And the only way that he could survive was basically to dumb himself down or else he was a threat and very intimidating to his slave masters. Also seeing several scenes in the film of him coming across Native Americans in the forest. And that's something that we don't talk about. Um, 
that the two of us were kind of just trying to figure out how to survive in a country that was no longer allowing us to just be. Um, And then also with Northup being an African-American who was a freed slave, seeing him in situations where he was amongst Africans who had been brought over. That was something that's typically not seen in slave movies. And then another scene that really stood out to me was when he was being punished and he was half hung on the plantation. And there were women who were putting up clothes on a line, doing laundry and children playing and running around. And this was just so normal for them. Just another scene in their life that wasn't something that was surprising. So that's one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite movies because of the storytelling, because of the writing, the acting, the cinematography. It's literally a piece of art in my eyes. And when I hear songs like hymns, it takes me back to my childhood. When I did go to church and I was raised Southern Baptist, and the churches that we went to are is very different than the churches that I learned about when I moved to Atlanta. On the church that I grew up in, there were two different ones. There was Union Grove, which is my mother's church that she grew up in, and Second Beulah Baptist Church, which is the church that my father grew up. And most of the time we went to Second Beulah, and at this church, you would walk in and there would be the older black men sitting in the front pews, um, singing hymns, and it just felt so welcoming as a child walking through the aisles, listening to that. It was, it felt like home. It felt warm. And it would be like the first two hours it felt like of church was just full of gospel songs. And it just evoked so much emotion. And I've never been able to like describe listening to someone whose voice sounds so powerful, so evoking, it makes you cry. And I like have never experienced that since my childhood, where it's this feeling of it's not like sadness. It's just this just overwhelming feeling that I cannot explain of how someone can sound singing and it could just be so powerful. It just takes over you emotionally. That's how I felt going to church on a Sunday as a kid. And it felt like we were there all day. <laughs> the minister was at no end <laughs> and no one wanted him to stop. But there was this family aspect of it. We would have dinner at the church afterwards. Everybody knew each other. The minister... um, This was like his side gig, I guess you could say. (laughs) Like it was like a hobby. It wasn't his main job. Like he worked at the factory in town. And this church was something that was in his family. Like his father was a minister and his father's father was a minister. And it was just passed down and passed down. And when everybody paid tithes, it was in order to keep the lights on and to, to be able to have a place to come and meet 
And when we went over, the secretary would go over like the announcements and she would talk about Sister Mary at home. She had surgery on her feet. If, if anybody wants to go over and check on her, you know, it just felt small in a good way, like a village. So much different than mega churches are and feel now. Um, and I love that. And I feel like that's so much a part of our history. And religion, regardless of where you stand on it or how you feel, was definitely a saving grace for African Americans during the time of slavery. It was their way of having an ability to have something to look forward to. Um, something that could give them a little bit of light at the end of the day. And I know in some ways of how it was put out or some ways it was taught to them could have been a form of control. We've read the story of Nat Turner. However, for many, it was a way to look at this life here on earth as temporary and to be able to have something to work towards in the afterlife, going to heaven. <laughs> I think it's said in the color purple, Celie says, this life will sure be over. Heaven lasts always. And that's how they felt back then. And, and there was no therapy. There was no counselor to go and say, you know, today was a hard day on the plantation and I just can't deal with it. You know, there was nothing. It was sun up, sun down. And this was their ability to cope. So to bring it all the way around to motherhood and motherhood, um, there was a quote that I had read by Toni Morrison as I opened this up. <laughs> and um, there's several Toni Morrison books that I really loved. Um the first Toni Morrison book I read was Tar Baby. And then I read The Bluest Eye, which is incredible and very thought provoking. But the third was Beloved. And after I read Beloved, um, the movie came out with Oprah Winfrey. And I feel like the only person, I, I've not met many people who's like, oh my God, I love Beloved. <laughs> Maybe it's like with 12 Years a Slave as well. But I just like beloved blew my mind and I was again young and I know it had a um, supernatural almost could be depicted as a horror film in a way um, underlining effect to it. But it was so much deeper than that. It had so many layers to it, which is off of the movie, but off of the book rather. Um this was a quote that Toni Morrison said during a conversation at New York Public Library. Um, she's a Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning author. And she said this about rep reproductive justice for black women. I never felt more free in my life until I had children. They were just the opposite of a burden. But for black women enslaved to have a child that you were responsible for that was really yours, that was really freedom. Because they took those children. You didn't have children. You may have produced them, but they weren't yours. They could be sold and were sold. To be a mother was the unbelievable freedom. 
when I read that, y'all, struck me because I was talking to somebody about this earlier this week of how after I had Ezra, there was someone that had told me when I told them that I was struggling, you should be able to do it. Slaves did it. And that was such a complex comment because I don't know struggle, you know, to be quite honest. I could not fathom what it must have been like to have been a slave during that time. There's no way that my mind could wrap around it. The trauma, the, the hurt, the pain, the ability to move forward every day. I could not conceptualize that by any, any means at all. And the difference between now and then is there were no options for them. You had your baby, you went back to work. That was it. You live or you die. That was all. And reading this quote by Toni Morrison and how she describes it as, we are blessed with the freedom to have our child and have our child. Then they did not have that. You gave birth and it was almost as if you were giving your slave master additional property for them to be able to do with as they pleased. Sell, keep. If you had a boy child, <laughs> likely they were going to try to make some good money off of it, depending on the structure, the build, because we were not looked at as humans at this time. We were farm equipment and we were shiny objects to take into town and to auction off for money. And to carry a human for nine months and not have the ability to necessarily bond, not have that time to be at home. There was no maternity leave. There was no FMLA, no short-term disability and not even the ability to breastfeed. And then to see that your child gets sold away and you never get to see them again, ever, never. You were lucky enough if that child was able to stay on the plantation with you. And even if they were to witness what they would have to go through and not be able to do anything about it, not to be able to say anything, not to be able to, de to, to defend them, anything at all the struggle and the difficulty in that. And I think that that's something we can sometimes take for granted is we get to have our children with us and have them with us. And what a blessing that is. So just a little known fact, just to kind of give you an idea of what slave life was like for mothers at that time. And this is something I'm sure that several Several people may already know about wet nurses, but in the event that they don't, because breastfeeding for the African-American community has definitely increased over recent years, but it wasn't something that culturally um, was just innate in our, in our race, and it's because of a lot of history behind it. Now, fortunately, you know, we have Black Breastfeeding Month, um, Black Breastfeeding Week. We have hashtags. We have several Black lactation specialists. Like, it is promoted. It is something that is, you know, talked about several times. 
especially in the maternal health community, which is great. But earlier in our beginnings, it was something that wasn't necessarily looked at as a bonding experience because we didn't have our children to bond with. It was a job. And in reading and doing my research about it, especially in Europe, there were some women who would be hired solely to be wet nurses. And what a wet nurse is, is an African-American slave that is forced to breastfeed her slave master's wife, or if her slave master was just merely a woman, her children. And in this time, breastfeeding for the slave master was something that she was not interested in. It was something that she felt like, you know, I don't want to do. Let me hire my slaves to do this with my children. And most of the time, for a woman to be able to breastfeed, she would have had to have had her own child. And of course, as we know, like with breastfeeding, it is a supply and demand. Um, So as long as there's someone to breastfeed, you will always make milk. So even if you've had your child, you started to produce milk and your child is three, four, five years old, but you've been breastfeeding someone else's children because they've been having children back to back, you will continue to create milk. And this is something you would give birth. They would, slave women, immediately go into the home of their slave master and take care of their child, bond with their child, be with their child, nurse their children from sunup to sundown. And they wouldn't have the ability to take care of their own children or be at home with their own child or possibly give their child their own milk. And that's something that's that's hard, that's difficult. But then again, looking at it through that lens of that time, slaves weren't looked at as humans. They wasn't they weren't looked at as people to really like sympathize or empathize with. They were literally just objects purchased to do a job. And it's disheartening, um, but it was the way of life of the way it was. Well, I looked at Mr. Rayner and Mr. Rayner wanted to know, was I going to have the casket opened? I said, oh yes, we're gonna open the casket. He said, well, Miss Bradley, do you want me to uh, do something for the face? Want me to try to fix it up? I said, no, let the people see what I've seen. I said, I want the world to see this because there's no way I could tell this story and give them the visual picture of what my son looked like. The easiest thing would have been to say, no, close the casket, I can't bear it. But she somewhere found the strength to say, I'll bear my pain to save some other mother from having to go through this. And because she put the, the picture of this young man's body on the conscience of America, 
she might have saved thousands of young black men and young black women's lives. I believe that the whole United States is mourning with me. And if the death of my son can mean something to the other unfortunate people all over the world, then for him to have died a hero would mean more to me than for him just to have died. That was the voice of Mamie Elizabeth Teal Mobley, the mother of Emmett Teal. Mamie was an American educator and activist. Emmett Teal was born in 1941. My own father was born in 1947. So speaking of Toni Morrison and Beloved, if you haven't read it or seen the movie, I encourage you to, because it was really, really good. Um, but it was based off of an African-American slave woman named Margaret Gardner. And Margaret was um, a slave who was married to her husband. They considered Margaret to be mulatto which at that time meant that you had a white parent and a black parent. And several of her children were also mulatto, which we can kind of understand how that happened. Anyway, so there was a time when Margaret and her husband had decided to escape the plantation in which they were living on. Their slave owner was Archie Ball Gaines. And... She and her husband wanted to leave. So them amongst a whole group of other slaves, it was about 20, 26 of them um, that had all decided to escape. And Margaret was only, I think she was 21 or 23 at the time that they left the plantation, um, went to Ohio. And once they got to Ohio, they split up with the other slaves who went on to stay with different abolitionists who were part of the Underground Railroad. And Margaret and her husband went to stay with Margaret's uncle. And Margaret's uncle, one day, while they were living with him, they were staying in, hiding out in his basement, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, he went into town to consult with someone about how to get them further north because the other slaves that they had went with um, originally escaped with, ended up escaping all the way to Canada. So Margaret, her husband, her kids, they're hiding out in the basement. This kind of gives you like an idea of when I said at the beginning of this episode, I could never know what the trauma must have been like for anyone at that time. Because being that most of her children were of mixed race, meant that she had to have been raped by her slave master. And also remember that she's married. So her husband is aware that these children are not his and there's nothing that he can do about it. There's nothing that she can do about it. But the gift that she has is that she has her children and she was able to escape with them. And life on the plantation with Archie Ball was not great. He was not a good slave owner. Um, he tortured his slaves, he whipped them, 
and they did not have a quote unquote good life on this slave. It wasn't one of the better slave plantations, um, if there is such. So they're hiding out in the basement and her slave owner shows up with several other men to take them back to the plantation in the South. And at that time, Margaret takes her infant daughter and murders her and injures her other children. And she does this in a way of stating that she would rather that they live in heaven than to have to go back and live in hell on the plantation. And again, when I say this about religion and the church and the Bible, in their mind, they literally thought that there was a life better after this one. And she did not want her daughter, this was her only daughter, to have to go through what she went through here on earth on the plantation. Margaret went on to go to trial. She was arrested and they were trying to figure out how to charge her for murder. And it was complex because she didn't kill a white child. She killed a black child. And if anything, they didn't really consider black people to be quote unquote human. And so the conclusion of it was that black people didn't really have rights. Who she killed didn't necessarily matter to them. And so the charges were dropped. And she went on to be sold to another plantation owner, separated from her other children and her husband. And she stayed there for the rest of her life until she passed. And I say this story because it's incredibly traumatic. It's incredibly disheartening um, to think of this. But these are the hardships that were faced upon them. This was the mentality. This was the difficult situations that they were in. And like I said, it's hard for anybody or any of us to really understand it or to make sense of it all. I don't understand. I don't necessarily even think that it's meant for us to make it make sense. But I think it's for us to really look at the fact that, wow, what a what a ways we have come <laughs> as black women and as mothers. And even with the story of Emmett Till, it's a familiar story. It's something that still happens today. And it really hits on why I have to have conversations with my black sons different than others will have to have with theirs. And it's a fear that I'll have to have within me when they leave my house to go to a friend's house or when they may walk our neighborhood, when they go to college or when they may just be driving home from work. And I cannot imagine what Mamie went through. I can't imagine having that type of strength to see my child in that way or to be able to have an open casket. I cannot fathom that by any means at all. But I just wanna be able to just take a moment to just honor these mothers of our past and to be able to just take a second to just say like, what strength, what power 
what ability they had to be able to just keep going on is incredible. And from that came my blessing way. (laughs) From that came my blessing way from Saturday to end on a brighter note. (laughs) Um, I ended up having eight of my closest friends come over to my house to be able to celebrate me in my blessing way. And I know that there's a lot of people who don't even know what a blessing way is. Um, I never knew what it was until I ended up getting into maternal mental health, meeting different people who were doulas, um, birth workers, and that's how I stumbled upon it. But to give you an actual definition of a blessing way, it is a sacred pre-birth ceremony that has traditionally been performed by Navajo people and celebrates a woman's rite of passage into motherhood. Now, it's more so recognized as a gathering of expected, expecting mothers, closest female friends and family that are there to build her up mind, body, and soul in preparation for her journey into motherhood. And the goal is to have her feel loved, recognized for her strength, believe in her body and its ability to birth her baby, feel confident for her labor, birth, and motherhood. It's a time where the focus is not on gifts, but instead on nurturing and supporting the soon-to-be mom. She should feel empowered, strong, and like a queen on her blessing day, blessing way day. And we feel that this ceremony is something that every expecting woman should have before giving birth. So blessing ways have kind of been transformed. You know, culturally it started from Native Americans, but it's it's different. And in the ones that other people have based off of their race, their culture, their geographical, you know, region they can kind of designate it how theirs is. Where mine's kind of began honoring my ancestors, honoring the females, the mothers that came before me, being able to take on their strength as I move forward as a mother. And when I say like, I can't even, you know, I can't fathom how they were able to like get through these difficult times as women or as mothers, me being able to take on that strength from them and knowing whatever happens along this motherhood journey, along this womanhood journey, I will have it within me to be able to do whatever it is that I'll need to do. I'll be able to tap into that inner strength to be able to carry forward. And my blessing way was amazing. It exceeded my expectations I'm incredibly grateful for it. It was exactly what I needed. (laughs) And if I could literally pay for every, not even just mom, but woman to have the same experience, I would. I think everyone deserves this at some point in their lives. It was beautiful. It was intimate. It was full of tears, laughter, um, moments of memories, and it was one of the best times of my life. Like, I will never forget it. I think we took one picture, and I didn't even, like, initiate the picture because I was completely oblivious (laughs) to taking photos. Um, So, thankfully, someone was like, we should take a picture at the end to, like, document this happened on this day. But I think like women being able to just 
remind you of who you are, what you have inside of you, what you've done for them, and vice versa. I think it's incredible. I think we can forget how strong we are. And we can also forget to lean on each other. And sometimes that's all we have is each other to get through it. And out of it, um, I just felt so full. My soul was full and complete. And I'm still riding on the high. It's, what, four days later? I still feel so grateful for everyone that came. And my mom wrote a letter for me that was incredibly beautiful. So much so I printed it out and I'm getting it framed. (laughs) Um, Something that I just, it was just very touching to me. But women, you are amazing. We have obstacles that we face all the time, challenges that we face all the time, and we get through it. And it's not to say that it's fair. It's not to say that that it should be this way, but we get through it. You know, one of the hardest things in my life was becoming a mom and I made it on the other side. And there are other women out there that have faced terrible things that had to make terrible decisions. When I think about Vanessa Bryant having to bury her husband and her child, it's so just awful and none of it has to be fair life is not fair but somehow some way we push through and I just wanted to take this time to have this message um, sent out to you that you are strong women And your ancestors were strong women. And you have it instilled in you, in your soul, in your spirit, in your body. You got it. And you will continue to pass it along. And we were put here when we came to America. We were put in some unfortunate circumstances And we survived it. And now we're here. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Happy Women's History Month. I hope you celebrate a woman that's dear to you. Tell her what she means to you. Uplift her. Call a friend. Go out to lunch. Go out to dinner. Have a drink. Laugh with each other. Take in their spirit. Take in their energy. And be present. Take a moment to pause. Recognize yourself. Reflect back on your accomplishments. Reflect back on your strength. On everything that you've done to build yourself up to get here. We can be on autopilot sometimes. And we can forget all of the bull that we've dealt with. But it helps build upon who we are. And it helps us move forward. Until next time, keep pushing.